0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Kira Posey. On today's episode of The Lead, I speak with Alex Sujung Laughlin. Alex is a writer and audio producer who has created and hosted podcasts for some of the biggest news brands in the world, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Buzzfeed. She was actually on this podcast in 2016, back when she was working in social media. Today, we talk about why she transitioned to audio storytelling, the importance of having your name attached to your work, and about the important topics she addresses in her newsletter about gender and media. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash coxinstitute. Now, here's the lead. And I'm here with Alex Jung Laughlin. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. It is such a pleasure to have you. How's it going?
1: <laughs> Hi, I am so happy to be here. Um, yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Of course, of course. Um, and I'm so happy to have you on. I have a lot that I want to talk to, to you about, uh, especially since that you since you were on the podcast, before, but over five years ago, in a much different setting and a different place in your career. So when you were on the podcast in 2016 at the ONA conference, things were a bit different. You were working at the Washington Post as a social media producer, and you gave advice about the importance of keeping up with side hustles. Since then, you've left the Washington Post and have made a shift to audio producing and writing. So what inspired your career pivot, and what originally made you want to break into audio storytelling?
1: Yeah, so in 2016, I was I was working in social media. That was my day job. Um, but I got into journalism originally because I had fallen in love with audio, um, and I wanted to be a long form audio journalist. You know, for a variety of reasons, that didn't happen immediately out of college. Um, and so, you know, when I graduated in 2014. The jobs that were available were social media jobs. And I was young and had grown up with the internet. And so it was easier for me to get a job like that. Um, but um, you know, in 2014, that was also when the podcast boom started happening. Serial launched in 2014. Gimlet launched in, I think, 2014 or 2015. Um, and all kinds of publications started building in-house audio teams. Um, and I saw that happening and I was like, oh this is my thing like I want to be doing this and it was so frustrating to me that I couldn't do it at my job because it it literally wasn't my job so I was really frustrated with the fact that I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing and I think a lot of young journalists experience this where they have kind of a dream version of their career and they are just (laughs) not there and they're not anywhere close to it um and so I decided to just sort of take that into my own hands and teach myself how to produce audio, launch my own podcast, um, and put myself on a schedule where I was putting out an episode every other week. And I did that for a couple of years. Um, and that was really around the time that I was like really into side hustles, which like is kind of a, like, kind of a cringy phrase now. Um, but I, it really served me at the time. And I still really believe in the idea of like, if the institution that you're working for is not providing the path for you to like do the thing that you want to do, then it's up to you to do it. And that might mean like you know doing a lot of extra unpaid work on your own, um, you know for for like two years, my Sundays were occupied by this podcast. but it ultimately paid off because I learned how to how to produce audio from there.
0: right, yeah. That point that you made about, you know, if the institution that you're working for isn't serving you, doing something um, on your own with your name attached to it is something that you wrote about in a recent essay called Ghostwriting that you wrote for Study Hall. And I want to I call out a specific line that I think is really interesting that you wrote. Um, you wrote, for the last decade of my career in media, I have worked as a ghost writer. And although you weren't always, you know, a literal ghost writer, a lot of the times and something that you brought up in the essay was, your name wasn't attached to your work at the institutions that you were working for. So can you talk about how or why why that was important for you and also how journalists, young journalists especially, can be cautious of having their name attached to their work?
1: Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of invisible labor in the journalism industry and in media at large. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that a- invisible labor indicates that there's collaboration happening. There are so many people whose names aren't included in a final byline of a piece, including, like, the editor who edited the piece, the copy editors, the design people, photographers, photo editors, any number of producers. Um, and so this this is a reality in media. Yes, we know this to be true. Um, but I think the, like, really important thing for me was that I didn't quite understand that when I was getting into media. And... The other thing is that I found myself repeatedly in positions, especially as an audio producer, where I was producing stories that meant a lot to me that could really only have come from me and then having having a host voice that and having the host get credit for that. Um, this is like a really insidious thing that happens in audio production, but you know it it's replicated across the industry in different ways. Um, And, you know, that was the form of ghostwriting that I was not okay with. You know, I think that, like, in terms of social media or or regular line editing, story editing, um, I think that many people who work in those jobs are okay not having their names out there. But when you're doing a job where you are the reporter, you are the writer, you are the person crafting a story, and then you don't get credit for that beyond this like vague production credit, which could mean any number of things. Um, that feels really bad. Uh, so, you know, I think that in terms of like younger journalists, I think it's really important to just be aware of like how you are fitting into the like larger ecosystem of the media environment you're working in. Um and, and to know that it's okay if your name isn't on everything. Like, that is okay. Um, but also to know that, like, if you are giving everything of yourself to a story um, or to a project, it is good and right and ethical for you to be credited accordingly. Yeah, I I feel like that's kind of a rant of mine and I could like keep going forever. I
0: kind of want to go back to, you know, like those feelings that you were having, you know, when these stories that you were producing were like stories that were very close to your heart. So I guess when you look for jobs now and look for projects now, how do you like deal with that feeling and and that experience and and having, you know, your name attached to your work? Like what, what do you look for and how do you prioritize that?
1: Well, I'm really lucky because I'm a freelancer now and I have a couple of regular gigs, um, which we'll talk about later. Um, I write a newsletter and I also produce a couple of shows. Um, And so those jobs compensate me enough uh, that I don't need to take every project that comes my way. Um, And so I'm able to like look at something and be like, okay, am I going to be able like is this person approaching me to work with me because they actually want to work with me or do they want, you know, just another brain, just another warm body to like add to the team? Um, which is, it's kind of crass, but like that, you know, that's a distinction. It's an important distinction. And I'm at a point in my career where I'm lucky enough to be able to choose work that's like specifically suited to me. Um, for example, like, you know, I walked away from one podcast project because it didn't quite feel like a right fit. Um, but I was able to say yes to another project that was editing on a fiction podcast about um, Korean-American intergenerational trauma. And, you know, that was like a very solid fit for me. Um, so, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is that whenever I do sign on to a project, I write – my my requirements for getting credit into my contract now. So, you know, when I signed on to work with Defector to produce podcasts, I was developing two shows for them and I was going to be producing them. Um, and I wrote into my contract, in addition to negotiating my rate, I wrote, I will be credited um, in audio form, in written form, whenever the show is promoted or like – Distributed, my name will also be attached alongside the hosts. So that's something that like I really recommend people do um, if if you're in like a sort of freelance capacity. I want
0: to talk to you about some of um, some of your projects. First, I want to talk about Normal Gossip. It's such a fun podcast that tells the gossip of people that we don't know and explores why that's so joyful, even though the listener will never meet these people. Um, it's it's fun. I listened to a couple episodes over the weekend. And I, I I just love it. So, what was the inspiration behind this project, and what has it taught you about the nature of gossip?
1: Ooh. Um. So I'll say that like this was not my idea. Um. This concept for the show came from the host Kelsey McKinney. Um. She wrote an op-ed for the New York Times last year about how like we miss gossip in the pandemic. Like you know, gossip is is the lifeblood of social communications and it's not a sin. So this has really been like Kelsey's idea, her baby. Um, and I signed on in August um, to develop the podcast and, and push it through to launch. And it has just been such a delightful project to work on because, you know, first of all, Kelsey is so fun and the concept is so fun. We just get to indulge in like, the most gossipy, like, soapy drama. And it's just nonsense. And it's really fun. Um, and, you know, the other really fun part of it is that, like, in order to anonymize the stories, we will often combine two gossip stories. Um, and and then, you know, change key details to make sure that, like, nobody can trace back to the original person because we really don't want to get sued. Um, And so there's like a little bit of like almost like fiction writing, like story crafting going on where we're like combining the stories and being like, how do we make this fit together? Which is, it's just like a fun creative problem to have. Um, But like, I think the bigger thing that's really important is um, in every conversation that we've had with guests about like what does gossip mean to them and like what, what role does gossip play in their lives it inevitably comes back to like a larger meaning of like gossip being a way of sharing information between people from marginalized groups um, or people without power in some way. Um, you know, Me Too has come up a lot in our conversations about gossip because that's what it is. Like Me Too was gossip. Um, and I, I like to think that what we're doing with this podcast um, is like – By sort of destigmatizing the lightest version of gossip and like coding it as something that people can love and like have positive feelings about, that that will also extend to the more important serious kinds of gossip that have like really, they have really important uh, implications for like the way we live and the way power is distributed. Yeah,
0: yeah. On a different note, you're the writer and editor of a newsletter about gender and media for Pointer called The Cohort. In addition to touching on gender and media, you also touch on a lot of other important issues like early career journalists' journey and also microaggressions in the workplace, among other topics. So what made you want to write a newsletter that touched on? these topics.
1: Yeah, I mean, so first I'll say, uh, the cohort was actually launched in 2016 um, by Katie Hawkins Gar, who's absolutely amazing. Um, and it was a sort of growth out of Pointers Women's Leadership Academy, um, which is a great program uh, for for people who are kind of like middle level managers in media. Um, but I got to take it over last year um, and we kind of did a relaunch. Um, we changed up the tagline and changed up the focus a little bit. So for me, you know, when I was approaching the cohort, I was thinking about also the fact that Pointer has a newsletter for BIPOC journalists called the Collective. Um, I'm half Korean and half white. I consider myself part of the BIPOC community, and. I'm also a woman and I was like thinking about the implication that there are separate newsletters for people of color and for women and like what is that implying to me that implied like the one for women is for white women that's just sort of my simple reading so I was like okay like I I'm so down to take over this newsletter but I want to sort of reframe it a little bit so it was really important for me to kind of set the tone in my first issue where I was like, okay, yes, this is going to be a newsletter about gender and media, but gender uh, is connected to all these other forms of power. It's connected to race and class and sexuality and ability and like whether you're a caretaker or not and age and resources and location, all of these things. Um, And so all of my newsletters have been kind of looking at the imbalances of power in any given sort of issue um, and thinking about how can we provide more resources to the people who lack power. Um, I was I was a women's studies major at UGA. Um, I actually wasn't a journalism major. And um, a lot of what I do with the cohort is like so deeply tied to the things that I learned at UGA, which is um, – kind of sweet it's like one of the first times that I've been able to like fully embody like this side of myself and be like yeah I'm gonna cite bell hooks in this like and it's a it's a journalism piece like (laughs) <laughs> what of it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, that's great. And I, I want to talk about oops, a couple of your recent additions um, at, and where you've spoken with early career journalists um, about, you know, their experience. And also you've spoken with um, people who are in the industry about their advice um, about, and about making the industry more accessible to early career journalists. So with what you've heard from from these sources and in addition to your own experience, what is some advice that you have for early career journalists who are looking for their first job?
1: So I think like the first thing is to pay really close attention to the things that are interesting you and like invest in them. Even if that thing that you're really interested in is like knitting or gardening or whatever. Um, If you know something really deeply, that is always going to be helpful um, in terms of like positioning yourself as a journalist in the future. I think that – I think a lot of times journalism students who are – journalism majors think that they need to be just like these perfect like you know tabula rasa like blank journalists who can just slot into any role because they think that's going to make them more marketable but I think that that's actually a mistake um, because you could be anybody you know and it's like when you really invest deeply in the things that you're passionate about, I think that's crucial. Like, that's the thing that's going to differentiate you, whether that's, like, reporting on a certain community or a certain topic or, you know, I don't know. I have a mentee who's Ukrainian and has just been going really hard on, like, reporting on the Ukrainian beat in the U.S., um, like, reporting on expat Ukrainians. And it's it's so great because, like, it's, like, that is the thing that makes her who she is. A um, couple of other things, like – there's a lot of advice when when you're young about finding a mentor and about like connecting with with older people who will be able to open doors for you or put in good words for you. And there's definitely something to be said about that. But I will say that I have gotten so many more opportunities from my peers and from my friends, from the people who are like on my level who have come up in the industry with me over time than I have from anybody who's like 10 years older than me. Um, First of all, like the industry is so much different than when they were coming up. Um, And the other thing is like, okay, maybe you connect with one powerful person. If you instead invest in your peer group, invest in your group of friends, and everybody is rising together, then you'll be surrounded by people who are like, you have invested in their careers, they've invested in yours. and it's just this really beautiful thing you know i i'm still really close friends with a couple of people that i was on the red and black with um one of them was like my first news editor my freshman year and you know we have a weekly call still and she's her name's Julia Carpenter she's at the wall street journal now but um yeah it's it's so much more rewarding um to invest horizontally rather than vertically um and then the last like <laughs> really important thing um goes back to what i was saying earlier about like side projects side hustles is that um you as as quickly as you can you should be trying to do the kind of work that you want to be doing um whether that is freelancing or launching a project at your student like newspaper radio station organization whatever um or just doing it on your own, like, starting a blog or a website where you're, like, doing the work that looks like the work you want to be doing. I I just can't uh, – I can't recommend that enough because it it really, like, primes you. It teaches you how to do the work, but it also shows people that, like, you you can do this kind of work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. I – like, I mean, there's so many things like what you just said. All oh, I know how I can apply to my career. And I know that our listeners can apply to their career. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. And I'm so thankful to have you on. Um, and just, yeah. Thank you so much for joining today. I know, again, you have such, have such, I look up to your career and I, you know, it's, it's so impressive to me. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Alex Laughlin for joining us on this episode. I'm your host, Kira Posey. Our producer is Dr. Keith Herndon, the executive director of the Cox Institute. To keep up with The Lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you
1: next time.